0: If you want to know whether a monarch's reign was any good or not, take a look at what happens when they die. A good monarch will have created a state which is stable and secure enough to allow for a peaceful succession. We see this very clearly at the death of King Edward III. England had been ruled by Edward for 50 years. Under his rule, the nation had been hit with furious shocks, the Black Death, And the beginning of the Hundred Years War. But Edward had always managed to salvage the situation. He had created a new aristocratic hierarchy, he had restored the balance of power between the crown and the barons, and by the end of his reign he was even able to enjoy a sort of retirement he left his sons to govern day-to-day in his place. But in 1377, just months before Edward's own death, his son and heir, the Black Prince, dropped down dead. Edward's new heir was a ten-year-old boy. This was huge, and it was dangerous. Throughout the whole of England's history, up to that point, there was only one instance where a child had inherited the crown. It had been Edward himself, and his early years had been scarred with civil war, a breakdown in law and order, and even with murder. It had taken Edward over a decade to repair the damage done to England during his minority. A child monarch meant civil war, factionalism and fighting between powerful barons was all but inevitable. And since Edward himself had endured unimaginable horrors as a child, it's possible that he personally felt heartbroken that he was leaving his grandson to the same fate. But Edward was perhaps forgetting What a massive impact he had had as king. England in 1377 was far more peaceful, stable, well functioning than in 1327. In fact, when Edward died and the young Prince Richard was proclaimed Richard II, the overwhelming reaction in England was to protect the young king at all costs. This is somewhat surprising, Edward III did have other sons, and the new Richard II was surrounded by powerful uncles who could easily usurp his authority at any given moment. And there were fears of this happening. John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster, was particularly ambitious, and the men of the court went to great lengths to keep him away from the young king. In the end, despite the fact that Richard was only 10 years old, it was decided there should be no regency. The king should rule himself, with the help of course of a permanent council of barons. In this way, they avoided giving too much power to any one man. So politically, among the aristocracy, there was a degree of peace and stability. It was an uncertain peace. It was fragile, but it existed all the same. The country now waited with bated breath to see how this young king would rule. Would he be as great as his illustrious grandfather? So what did this kingdom that Richard II inherited, what did it look like? It's fair to say England was not exactly a shining prize in 1377. There was wealth in England. Certainly the king's palaces in Windsor and Westminster were renowned across Europe. Throughout the years of the Hundred Years' War, the fighting had gone on in France, not in England, so England itself had enjoyed relative prosperity that came with peace. But England had been ravaged by the Black Death, less than 20 years previously. Half the population had died. There were severe labour shortages. And amongst those people left alive, there was a deep mistrust of government and of church. Increasingly, peasants began to break the laws which were meant to keep them in their place. They moved to towns and cities in search of a better life. They moved to new estates, estates which paid more, or lands which offered more lands for them and their families. They demanded better wages from their landlords. There was a succession of laws which had been passed against the serfs since the plague. And officially, wages were fixed, and the rights of the serfs were severely restricted. But in reality, no one could enforce these laws. There wasn't enough people to do it. And even the king himself, King Edward III that is, was known to break the laws routinely whenever he needed more labourers or more craftsmen at the palace. The church had been used as another means of re-establishing control over the peasants' lives, and increasingly, though admittedly not overwhelmingly, people, particularly in the east coast of England, began to follow the English preacher John Wycliffe in a reformed version of Christianity known as Lollardy. This never gained as much momentum as the Protestant Reformation would in later centuries, but it is very much like a precursor to the Reformation. Exacerbating all of these issues was the fact that the court seemed totally oblivious to the massive changes society had endured. The policy of government was rooted on the war with France and raising enough taxes to win it. As far as both King and Parliament were concerned, the plight of the peasants was completely irrelevant. So imagine you're a peasant in 1380. That's 90% of the population. You have almost no rights. You are literally the property of your landlord. The forests that you live next to are teeming with food and timber, but you're not allowed to take any of it. You only have a small patch of ground to grow crops to keep your family from starvation. You've personally watched your family, sometimes your whole community, die from this strange and mysterious disease. And suddenly, your local priest is telling you not to drink, not to sleep with your spouse, and your landlord was taking huge cuts of whatever money and food you could scratch together. Break any of the rules, and you could lose everything, your home, your income, even your life. It is true the condition of the peasants wasn't new. they had always lived harsh lives. It wasn't a new thing under Richard II. But suddenly, the laws were being enforced with a new vigour. So where previously the authorities may have turned a blind eye if you went to do a bit of hunting in the woods. Suddenly, now they came for you. And in 1381, the government announced they were introducing another new tax. This time, it was a tax which everyone had to pay, regardless of their means. A poll tax. If there's one lesson to learn in British politics, it's never introduce a poll tax. It never goes well. And it really was the straw which broke the camel's back in 1381. very quickly officials encountered resistance throughout the counties of england at first it was relatively passive peasant communities simply ignored the local courts and law enforcers they refused to pay taxes in some instances they even set up their own systems of local government and it's important to remember that it wasn't just the peasants who were rebelling Local officials, such as the Reeves and Bailiffs, the very people who were meant to be collecting taxes, often participated too. There was an element of officialdom, an educated group within this new rebellion, which would go on to play an important role. But it did gradually get more violent. Eventually, local tax collectors would be attacked. Local officials became targeted by this ferociously angry group of peasants who were furious at the King's new policies. Throughout May of 1381, these groups of angry peasants began to form themselves into what we could recognise as armies, and by early June 1381, rebellions were forming right across, particularly in the southeast in Kent, Suffolk, and Norfolk, but right across the country up through Yorkshire and the Midlands too. Barons and members of the royal court, particularly in the east, actually had to flee the region. And it's at this point the Rebellion seems to have formed some sort of a structure, a chain of command. Wat Tyler was elected as the leader of the Rebels. He was a man of poor birth, but clearly a very strong, charismatic character. The Rebels began to formulate their arguments. They demanded the right to hunt in the forests, the right to earn a decent living, and even the abolition of serfdom itself. They asked that the laws of the Normans be abolished in their entirety and that England went back to the ways of the Anglo-Saxons. They sought to purge the court of the advisers who had most rigidly enforced the taxes and harsh laws, in particular the Archbishop of Canterbury and the King's uncle John of Gaunt. On the 10th of June, the rebels even took Canterbury Cathedral, and declared the archbishop there officially deposed. Crucially though, the rebels claimed that they were wholly loyal to the young king Richard. They said it was the king's ministers who had caused the problems, not the king himself. On the 13th of June, the feast of Corpus Christi in the church, the peasant army arrived at London. Now we don't know for sure how many there were, but they were almost certainly ran into the thousands. One chronicler reported 60,000 people turned up, although well, we're not sure entirely how true that is. One of the leaders there proclaimed the immortal phrase, when Adam delved and Eve span, who then was gentlemen? There could be no doubt about the rebels' intentions. They wanted equality. The king himself, by now a young man of 14, was in the Tower of London, His armies were away in France, and he had only a small bodyguard to keep himself. If he thought he was safe in London, he could think again. As the rebels marched on the city, the gates were swung open, and the rebels were welcomed by the city with open arms. A horrible reality was sinking in at the royal court. As powerful and as grand as they were, they could not rule without the support of the people. The Savoy Palace, on the site of where the modern Savoy Hotel is, was burned to the ground, being the home of the hated John of Gaunt. The royal prison in Southwark was torn apart, in a stunning precursor to the storming of the Bastille, while the Templar monastery in London, itself more of a bank than a holy place, was similarly gutted. There was no mad ransacking, however. There was destruction, but it was ruthlessly calculated and restricted only to those figures who were effectively blamed for the oppression of the peasants. People associated with taxes or law enforcement could expect to have their properties destroyed, but nothing was ever stolen. Even when they ransacked the Savoy Palace, the treasures were simply thrown into the Thames. The peasants went to great lengths to prove they were not simple thieves, this was political action the young king was left in his tower, watching as his own capital burnt. And things were going to take an even more dramatic turn. Richard agreed to meet the rebels in East London, so on the morning of the 14th of June, he left, bringing his bodyguard with him. Those rebels left in the city took the opportunity to storm the Tower of London itself. In a way, this was relatively easy. There was only a small guard in the Tower who didn't resist when the rebels arrived. We don't know whether they sympathised with the rebels or whether they were simply too scared to resist them. It is possible that the gates of the Tower had actually already been left open, ready for the King's return, a rather foolish tactic, But either way, it remains the only time in the history of the Tower of London that it has fallen into enemy hands. And it was terrifying to everyone, to the establishment. The officials hated by the rebels, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, were dragged from the Tower and executed. John of Gaunt's own son, the future Henry IV, was very nearly killed, and even the King's mother and sister were interrupted. They were left unharmed, but the rebels did mock them. One peasant even sat on the Queen Mother's bed and asked her to give him a kiss. Most shockingly of all, this massive moment in English history, this real watershed, the closest England came to popular revolution, was led by a woman, a female peasant called Joanna Ferrer. Her name is not well known, In the annals of English history, but it certainly should be. After the revolt was over, there is evidence that officials sought to conceal the fact that a mere woman had overseen the seizure of the Tower of London. They were worried that actually it was even more embarrassing if the great citadel could be taken by a peasant girl. The following day, it became increasingly obvious that concessions would need to be made. They were losing control of the country. By now, the peasants were effectively demanding the abolition of all Norman laws and a return to the customs of Anglo-Saxon England. With the tower under rebel control and most of the country in upheaval, something would have to give. On the 15th of June, the 14-year-old king marched to Smithfield. Where it agreed to meet Wat Tyler and the rebels. Richard had already agreed to many of the peasants' demands, so his priority was ensuring that the rebels now dispersed. Tyler, though, wanted more concrete legal reforms. At the meeting, he demanded a new charter be written there and then, guaranteeing the freedom of the serfs. He could also perhaps sense the weakness of the royalists as he began to act churlishly greeting the king familiarly, as though they were old friends, patting him on the shoulder. Tyler demanded refreshments from the royal servants, acting as though he himself was one of the great members of the household. At some point, an argument broke out between Tyler and one of the servants, no doubt frustrated at Tyler's rather arrogant attitude. And in the scuffle, Tyler made a motion against the king himself, and this caused panic among the household around him. A young squire jumped forward and stabbed Tyler, killing him on the spot. Tyler called out to the peasants to attack. You can imagine the scene as thousands of angry peasants stood in the distance and watched as their leader was killed. They raised their weapons, notched arrows in their bows and prepared to attack the king and his retinue. There were thousands of peasants, there was 200 of the king's bodyguard. This was dangerous. Then the king rode forward. This was one of the bravest moments of Richard II's life. He called out to the rebels, Follow me. I am your leader. I will be your king. Amazingly, in the confusion, in the heat of the moment, the rebels began to cheer their young king. And they did. They followed him back to the rebel camp. Tensions instantly calmed. It was a remarkable moment of a monarchy which, in that moment, led its people directly, not through the aristocracy. After this huge PR victory, the rebels began to despair, safe in the trust that the king would see their demands met. They started to believe, just as much as Richard did, in the bond between monarch and subject. Very quickly though it became clear that the opposite was true. An army was raised to enforce the suppression of the rebellion. The Duke of Gloucester was given the direct responsibility of crushing any remnants of the revolt. And Richard himself, when visiting Essex, was asked by a peasant if he intended to abolish serfdom as he had promised. And Richard replied, Peasants you were, peasants you are. You will remain in bondage not as before, but incomparably harsher. New laws were introduced which made it legal to kill a rebel without due process, and all the old serf laws were reintroduced by new sessions of parliament. But the rebels had not entirely been defeated. They had not achieved their aim of eradicating serfdom and establishing equality. But then that had always been more of a pipe dream. It's unlikely that many people, even during the revolt, actually thought that was going to happen. But the poll tax was abolished. And Parliament also committed to reducing the war effort in France in order to save money and save the burden of taxation on its people. Importantly was that while officially the ills and barons were meant to come down hard on their serfs in the aftermath of the rebellion, The reality was that very few actually did. Remember that we're still in a time when half the population had died from the plague. So the last thing landlords were wanting to do was execute those employees they had left. So most peasants got away perfectly free. And although there was no national change in the status of serfs, there did now exist a very real fear of the masses among the aristocracy most landlords did give their tenants better lands for lower rents and higher wages, and often the peasants themselves would quite happily remind their landlords of the revolt as a way of negotiating a better deal. Nationally, the rebels had lost. Most people would have managed to swing a much better deal after the revolt was finished though. But one of the biggest impacts of the peasants' revolt was on the young king himself. Richard, after the rebellion, was one of the most celebrated kings of his age, and he was only still a child, that a young 14-year-old had the gumption and the courage to lead a rebel army away. It had established him as almost a legendary figure across Europe. The problem was, as many political leaders have discovered to their detriment since, he began to believe his own legend. He developed a very colourful, a very glorious self-image, and he took deep offence at anyone who he thought had in some way stood on his authority as king. He was the first king to insist on being called Your Majesty and Your Highness, rather than My Lord or Sire. He created new titles, in particular the title of Marquis, And he created a very elaborate court ritual, which was all centred around his own person. And while all this was going on, the war in France was going horribly wrong. In 1386, the Lord Chancellor put a request to Parliament for new taxes. Parliament was horrified at the sheer amount of money being requested, particularly in light of the Peasants' Revolt. They not only refused, but they demanded that the Lord Chancellor resign. Now Richard, by this point, already had a very elaborate sense of self, and he took deep personal offence at this. He declared that he would not dismiss as much as a scullery maid at Parliament's request. He then took the rather drastic step of creating his own personal standing army, made up particularly of Cheshire men and archers from Wales, people who could be relied upon for their loyalty. He created an intimidating setup at court. Imagine going to the king to petition him and being surrounded by his armed guards. It seemed a rather obvious attempt to intimidate his court into obedience. Rather alarmed at this turn of events, several of the king's uncles and cousins formed their own faction to insist that parliament's demands were met. They intercepted the Lord Chancellor, defeating his own small force, and insisted that he stand down. They took steps to arrest all of those advisers who were deemed to be too close to Richard, and most of those men were executed. This was a very bloody coup. And it had been a really dangerous turn of events. It had come dangerously close to removing Richard himself from power. But somehow, Stability prevailed. I think perhaps it was only the fact that it was the wider royal family intervening which prevented the situation from collapsing directly into civil war. But alarm bells were certainly ringing. Richard was becoming dangerously self-deluded. He was already being referred to as a tyrant. But Richard wasn't stupid. He does recognise at this point that his own position as king was in danger. He was still only 21, So he declared in 1389 that he was officially of age and he stated that the reason there had been so many problems in his early reign had been because he was underage, because other people had made the decisions for him. Now this wasn't necessarily true and many people didn't believe him, but actually most people were happy enough to swallow the excuse. At least they could turn a page and start anew. Peace was sought in France and Richard promised to reduce the burden of taxes on his people. He was betrothed to Princess Isabella of France, and in 1394, he even oversaw a resoundingly successful conquest of Ireland, to which many people seemed to mark him out as a great king. Remember, medieval kings are meant to go to war, they're just meant to win them. So Richard would go on to govern for another eight years in perfect harmony. Everything seemed to be going very well, he was doing everything he should be doing as a medieval king. But personally, Richard had not forgotten the indignities, as he saw it, that he had suffered earlier. In 1397, almost out of the blue, Richard had all of those lords who had previously opposed him arrested and tried for treason. This was eight years after the fallout over the Lord Chancellor, this was a king who had held a grudge. One by one, they were either executed or exiled for life. And not content with simply executing his political rivals, he now sought to purge England from all opposition's support. Across the country, any official, no matter how low down, who had been sympathetic to the opposition, was arrested. Their lands, their titles, Were seized and were now granted to Richard's supporters. Richard now had all the power, all the wealth he needed to rule with unquestionable authority. There remained just one threat to his power. His uncle, John of Gaunt, was the head of the House of Lancaster, the family most likely to succeed Richard if he died without children. They were fabulously wealthy, one of the largest landowners in England, and politically they were powerful. John of Gaunt's son and heir was Henry Bolingbroke, who had a furious argument in court with the Duke of Norfolk. Richard exploited the situation by exiling both of the men, conveniently removing two rivals for power from the palace. But in 1399, John of Gaunt died too. Notwithstanding the exile, Henry Bolingbroke was legally entitled to come home in order to inherit his father's lands and titles, but Richard intervened. He stripped Bolingbroke of all his remaining estates and absorbed him into the Crown. He then held the Parliament of Shrewsbury, which officially absolved the need for Parliament at all in England, instead creating a much smaller council of people appointed by Richard. Richard was now an absolute ruler, all-powerful, and unchallenged by the barons who were now firmly beneath his heel. In fairness to Richard, he had achieved what all of his forebears had been seeking to achieve. The eradication of Magna Carta, the destruction of Parliament, the creation of an absolute monarchy. Remember that democracy didn't exist in the 14th century, so we can't look at this period with modern eyes. If you were alive in 1399, you'd probably call Richard II a resounding success. And many common people believed it, they had no invested interest in Parliament, which was a body of landowners and aristocrats. Richard himself remembered the rebels, the claims that it was the ministers who had caused the problems. He believed in this contract between the monarch and the people directly, albeit a rather harsh contract which meant the people needed to know their place. And he believed them when they had declared their unwavering loyalty to him and hit out against the baronage. His assumption of power had also been as perfectly legal as it was possible to be in the Middle Ages. It was through Parliament that he dissolved Parliament, so he could easily claim to be acting on the advice and in the interests of his people. Similarly, his disinheritance and exile of his cousins may seem very harsh to us today, but history even then was littered with calamities and political disasters which came about because of the ambitions of an extended royal family. By pruning the family tree, displacing those cousins who were too powerful, he was successfully removing a political rival and the threat of civil war. In many ways, well done Richard. And he had also pioneered the concept of the royal court being the very centre of art and learning. To this day, some of the most magnificent artworks from medieval England come from his rule. When Richard was at his apex, court ritual, religious expression, and even English literary achievements were a hallmark of his time as king. It's no coincidence that Geoffrey Chaucer was patronised and employed by King Richard II. But he was going a bit too far. One record says that Richard would sit on his throne for hours in silence, and whoever his eyes fell upon was expected to fall to their knees. This was a very harsh way of forcing court obedience. His use of a private army was also, although politically brilliant, a threatening and unsettling sight to see in England. England was not a country which was used to standing armies. And there were two main big problems with Richard's policies. Firstly, he had exiled many of his political rivals, but he hadn't executed them. This was in order to keep his rule legal and just. Even as a king, you couldn't really just go around killing everybody willy nilly. But what it meant was that his rivals were still out there looking for a chance to score revenge. Secondly, the sheer speed and scale of Richard's coup left his aristocrats terrified that they would be next. Richard was ruling quite effectively with vast power and authority but he was not governing with support and with popularity. In June 1399, Henry Bolingbroke, the son of John of Gaunt, arrived in England and raised his banner in rebellion. Officially, Henry was simply seeking to have his lands restored to him. But very quickly, he realised he could gain support for an even bigger prize, as one by one, the dukes and earls of the realm rallied around Henry Bolinbroke. Henry decided it was time to claim the throne of England for himself. Richard was in Ireland when Henry arrived, so there was very little resistance to Henry's rebellion. In fact, it took Richard so long to get back, that by the time he had returned, it was too late. He met with Henry at Flint Castle in Wales, in August 1399. We don't know what was said, but Richard formally agreed to abdicate. He was brought to London, where he was imprisoned in the Tower. According to one source, Richard was distraught. He denounced his cousin as a traitor and demanded his release. But even while Richard was screaming in fury, 33 articles were being read before Parliament, itself recently returned to existence by Henry, at which Richard was deemed unworthy to remain King. On the 1st of October, 1399, Richard was formally deposed as King. His cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, was crowned King Henry IV of England, the first King of the House of Lancaster. Within months, Richard was dead. It's believed he was starved to death. So Richard came to a very sticky end. It's really difficult to decide whether he deserved this end or not. On one hand, this was a man who was clearly capable and brave. His actions in the Peasants' Revolt were incredible. And his actions as king, yes, they were very harsh. They wouldn't be welcome in the modern world but they were no different really to the actions of any previous or successor English king. He was no more tyrannical than any other monarch, and in fact he achieved a success which many of his forebears had been striving towards. Yes, he dissolved Parliament, but that had been the stated aim of every monarch since King John. Parliament was not yet a fundamentally established part of English governance. And remember too, that it was not a popular rising in favour of Parliament which deposed Richard. It was the ambitions of his cousin. This was a dynastic war, not a popular revolution. In many ways, Richard acted and ruled as a medieval king was supposed to do, and he did it with very good success. If Richard had had a son, I have no doubt Henry Bolingbroke would never have aimed at deposing him, and he would have settled instead for the return of his English estates. But Richard was overthrown, and we need to ask why that was. His behaviour was certainly very erratic, ordering his courtiers to stand in silence for hours, demanding to be called Majesty instead of Lord, he certainly had a very dim view of his aristocracy. He believed he was better than them. And in an age where personality mattered, where personality was very much part of power and politics, his high-handed manner was actually quite dangerous. It alienated people who otherwise would have befriended him. Richard, even at the end of his reign, did have supporters. The reason he was probably starved to death on the orders of Henry the was because there were lords in England who were loyal to him and were rising up against the Lancastrian king. But there were also many enemies who Richard had displaced, but failed to execute, and that meant that when Henry Bolingbroke raised his standard, there were plenty of people willing to cause trouble for Richard. In the end, Richard was perhaps simultaneously too ruthless, but not ruthless enough. And it was this predicament which ultimately led to his downfall. He created enemies, but he failed to destroy them. I think it's also significant that while Richard may not come across as a sympathetic figure to modern eyes, he was elitist, he was classist, he was a snob, But on the other hand, his changes in the way monarchy works, the titles, the styles of address, the ritual, were all kept after his deposition. And his system of absolute monarchy, although it was abolished immediately after he lost his crown, became envied by later monarchs who aspired to return to his absolutism. Far more significantly, than the personality of Richard himself, was the consequences of his deposition. Richard was the last true Plantagenet king, in the sense that he was the eldest son of the eldest son in a line stretching back centuries. King Henry IV was a Lancastrian. Now it is true, the Lancastrians were also Plantagenets, it was not a completely different family, but they descended from a younger branch of the family and they were not accepted as the sole legitimate heirs. Edward III had had many children, and now all of those children and their descendants could claim to have as strong a claim to the throne as the king himself. In particular, the Lancastrians were opposed by another branch of the Plantagenet family, who saw themselves as the legitimate rulers of England. They were the House of York. And for the next hundred years, the conflict between the Lancastrians and the Yorks would tear England apart.